all know a God who has not failed you ever. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and everyone who has been a mother to those who are not maybe officially your children, uh, but you've cared for them like a mother, and we're so grateful uh, for all that you've done for us. Celebrate my wife today, my mother-in-law. Get to see my... Get to see my mom later today, so it's a good day. It's a good day. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're just going to read one verse out of Hebrews chapter 11, and then we're going to jump over to Judges. Uh, if you're joining with us today for the first time, whether you're here in the building or you're watching online with us, we are in the middle of a series in Hebrews 11 called Enduring by Faith. Enduring by Faith. And so we're looking at the saints in Hebrews 11 in the Old Testament who uh, have endured through their faith in Christ. And so uh, today we come to the story of Gideon, and uh, his story is rather long. I may, we'll see, I may do two weeks on Gideon. Uh, we'll see how it goes for next week. But uh, we're going to read verse 32. In Hebrews 11, he, he, uh, the author begins to just kind of rattle off names, and, and uh, he lists Gideon first. In verse 32, hear the reading of God's word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And so then over to Judges chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 14. It says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and have drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why, or why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, a repenting faith, a repenting faith. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, we ask that you would do as we sung, that you would pour out your spirit. Here as we read your word, as we uh, study your word, as we listen to what your spirit would say, we ask that you would help us to hear your voice and turn us towards repentance. God, give us the gift of faith that we might love you more with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. On October uh, 31st, 1517, there was a German scholar and priest, as the story goes, who walks up the steps of a famous church called Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he walks up the steps of the church and he pulls out a piece of paper from his pocket and nails a piece of paper to the door of the church. And that piece of paper would start what many would call a revival or a revolution or what history has called a reformation. And of course, that man, that priest from Germany, his name was Martin Luther. And he began uh, what many call uh, this, this movement that transformed the church. And it was on that little piece of paper that he wrote his 95 Theses. And maybe you've never heard of the 95 Theses, or maybe you have and you never read them, but the 95 Theses are Martin Luther's reflections on the, the dangers and, and the uh, corruptions in the church that he saw that needed to change. And so he, he wrote them all out and he put them on the church door so that people could debate them. And they were in Latin and then they got translated into German. And so once they were in German, now they could be spread throughout the whole city. And it spread like wildfire, and it began what's called now the Protestant Church. And you look back on the 95 Theses and how they've shaped church history over time, and what you do, you go back and you look to see what he said. What did he say that transformed the church forever? Well, if you read just the first one, this is what he says. In the very first of his 95 Theses, he says this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. He intended the entire life of believers should be repentance. Did you catch that? When our Lord and Master said to us, repent, He intended the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. All of life. In other words, not just the beginning of your life, not just the middle of your life, not even the end of your life, but all of life. The A to Z of Christianity is to be repentant. And so it was this call to repentance that really transformed the church. And yet, today, 500 years later, we're still struggling with confusion about what is repentance. And I think it's because every generation needs, in some sense, to kind of rediscover that. We need to kind of rediscover the gospel in a way where, where we go back to the scriptures and we see what, what is God really saying to us. But, but in discovering that, we also need to know what repentance is. 
What does it mean? How does it work? There's, there's so much confusion around it. There's, there's people today who, who see repentance as kind of a one-time event. Right? You, you had this, this emotional uh, church gathering, maybe it was a, a youth camp, or somebody had a revival service, or your friend invited you to church for the first time in a long time, and, and they were preaching about something that really hit you hard. It, it just spoke right to where you were, and, and the pastor called you forward, and you come down to the front, and you prayed a prayer, and you repented. You turned from your sin, you turned to Jesus, and that was in 1978, and you know, that was the last time I repented. Like this, repentance is this huge event, and it's a one-time event that happened in your life, and you can look back on it, and you can tell the story of that one time you repented. Or repentance is kind of this major event in your life, but it happens multiple times, but it has to be something serious, right? It's always a big event. It's got to be emotional. You're, you're not repenting unless someone is crying or someone is dying. Like that, that is kind of the sense of repentance for many people. It's, it's this thing that happens more than once, but it's, it's very occasional. It's when you mess up really bad and things have gotten so terrible. You know, you really need God now. You really need Him to show up and you really need His forgiveness. And so you're going to repent. And so repentance is these big emotional events. But then Martin Luther says, it's not, it's not just a one-time event. It's not a, necessarily a big event. It's an everyday, ongoing event. It's this all-of-life repentance. And if repentance is all of life, then it should look like all of life. It should be regular. It should be mundane. It should be a, a habit. It should be a practice. It, it should be the kind of thing that we're comfortable with because it's, it's normal. Right? Let's, let's normalize repentance. That, that's the vision in, in the Gospels. That's the vision in, in the whole Bible is repentance is meant to be this ongoing life of repentance. And so that brings us to this book of Judges because the book of Judges, if any book in the Bible is about repentance, the book of Judges is about repentance. The book of Judges is really, is really a, a book that goes in cycles. You can kind of read the first couple chapters and, and you've got the theme for the whole book, but he just keeps going. You ever, you ever read a book like that or watched a movie like that? You got the point in the first five, ten minutes, but they just kept going to just nail it home and you're just you're hearing it over and over and over again. That's the book of Judges. The book of Judges sees this cycle over and over and over again. And you see this cycle that really has four parts. The first part is the people of God rebel against God. In fact, you see this refrain throughout the book that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Everybody had their idea of what was right and what was wrong, and it didn't match up with the other folks. And so because everyone had their own definition of good, there was all kinds of bad. And they rebelled against God, they start worshiping idols, and then the second step happens, God brings retribution, He brings judgment and discipline on His people, and then after that, they repent, they turn back to God, and then God sends a judge and he rescues them. And so when you see the word judge in the book of Judges, don't think of like somebody sitting in a high seat in a court. The term judge was more of a deliverer, someone who was a rescuer or, or a leader who would come bring their people out, right? So, so that's the cycle. You've got, you've got rebellion, you've got retribution, repentance, and then you've got rescue. Over and over and over throughout 
the book of Judges, you see this cycle, and then we come to chapter 6 with the story of Gideon, and you see a particular insight into repentance. And this is what I want to focus on today. I want, I want to really focus in our short time together on what is repentance and how does it happen in our life. And so if you're taking notes this morning, that's the question I want to ask. What does a repenting faith look like? And first, in the first point, we need to look at repentance and regret. We're going to have just two points today. Repentance and regret is the first point. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the, into the hand of Midian seven years. Now think about this. Pause for a moment. If, if you go back and you read chapter 5, you see that they'd just gone through that cycle again. They, they had sinned, they had seen judgment, then they repented, and then God rescued them. And then it says they had 40 years of rest. 40 years of comfort and joy and, and peace in the land. And then they fall into sin again, right? This is just us. This is, this is how it works. They, they fall into sin again, and, and because they sin, God starts the second part of the cycle. He sends discipline upon them, and this time it comes in the form of the Midianites. And the Midianites, it says, are their neighbors who would just kind of sit in the shadows and wait to plunder them. So imagine for a moment the Midianites are like, you know, Christmas Day. You, you are ready to open your presents and, and you've been waiting all year for this. And, and then, you know, you open up all your presents. You've got this pile of presents in your living room. And then someone bombards your house, steals all your presents, drives away. That's the Midianites. The Midianites are just waiting for all their hard work throughout the year. They're laboring and toiling and, and farming their land. And then when all the harvest comes in, the Midianites come in. And they take over and they plunder everything. And the people are so terrified of the Midianites, they run to the hills, carry whatever they can, and, and they hide out for a few weeks while the Midianites just take over their town. And by the time they return, there's nothing left. Year after year after year for seven years. Seven years. At this point, Israel is tired. They're discouraged. They're hopeless. They're, they're ready to give up. And it goes on long enough until we see in verse 6, it says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, right? It says they were very low, that they were despairing, they were ready to give up. And when they're at their lowest point, it says they cry out to God for help. And then God does the strangest thing, right? They say to God, God, deliver us. God, help us. Help us in this, in this brokenness. And then God does the strangest thing in verse 7. Look at what it says. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. You catch that? God sends a prophet with a sermon instead of a judge for deliverance. It's real subtle, but, but don't miss what's happening here. When, when they're crying out in their brokenness and their, in their circumstances of suffering, God sends a prophet. I mean, wait a minute, this, is, this isn't the cycle. We're supposed to cry out in repentance, and you're supposed to rescue us. That's how this works. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I, uh, we lived in an apartment right around the corner from here, and, 
and great little apartment. We, we loved our neighbors there and everything. And, and after a few months of living there, maybe a year of living there, uh, we started to notice some mold on the ceiling in the bathroom. You know, it's, it's Florida, you know, there's, there's moisture and, and, you know, it's a bathroom, there's, there's moisture. We just thought it was just normal mold. I clean off the ceiling and then it comes back a few days later. And then I clean off again and it comes back again and it comes back worse. And so now I'm like, what, this doesn't seem right. I clean it off again. It comes back and starts to spread to other places in our apartment. And so then I call the landlord, and the landlord sends somebody out, a kind of, you know, it's a normal maintenance guy, and he looks at it, kind of dismisses it as nothing, and then he cleans it up. And then it comes back worse. And then he comes back out, and he looks at it, he says, yeah, I must not have gotten it all, and he cleans it up again, dismisses it. And then it comes back the third time, and it starts spreading to our furniture, and, and there's just mold taking over our apartment. It gets so bad, we tell the landlord, if, if we don't figure out what's causing this, we're going to have to move. And they said, well, we're not going to do anything. And so we moved. And when we moved, we get a call a couple weeks after we moved out from the landlord. And the lady said, hey, I just want to apologize to you. We didn't think it was that serious, but when you moved your stuff out and we went in there to check about what was going on, we actually found a leak in the wall. And there was a pipe that had a, had a major leak back there, and there was water all up in the wall. We had to tear out the whole wall and send in a plumber to rebuild all the plumbing behind the bathroom wall. It was a major, deep issue. What we thought was a kind of surface level, you know, it's just something going on that, that we can kind of clean up easy, had a major structural problem. See, the reason I tell you that is because you got to ask yourself, when you see what's happening in Israel, usually the solution that's sent, right, represents the problem that's present. So, so why did God send a prophet when Israel's crying out in their pain and in their suffering? It's because Israel had a deeper problem. Israel had a deeper problem than maybe they were even aware of. Right? They, they were showing... Evidence not of repentance, but of regret. Of regret. See, when the prophet shows up, he starts to recount immediately. He says, you know, this, this is a message from the Lord, and, and I, am, I am the Lord who, who delivered you out of Egypt. And he starts to recount all the things that God has done. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them out of every oppressor they've had. He's given them this land that isn't their land. He's saying, I have done all of this for you. And then listen to how the prophet closes his sermon. In verse 10, it says, And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but you have not obeyed my voice. End of sermon. Like, imagine that's the end. You just close your Bible. You walk off the stage. That's it. Ouch. What the prophet is saying to them is, look, it, it seems as if you're repenting because it seems on the outside like this has been emotional and this has been hard and, and you're going through difficult things, but I know your heart. I know your heart. And so they were tired, they were low, they were frustrated, they were even crying out to God, but it wasn't repentance, it was regret. And repentance can often be confused with regret. We see this, this contrast, this strong contrast in, in the New Testament with Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. And actually we read this in our community Bible reading 
uh, journal this week. In uh, verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, he says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Let me read it again. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, both regret and repentance have deep sorrow and grief, but there's an there's a incredible difference. There's different fruits. There's different fruit, right? And, and so the urgent question becomes, as a Christian, how do you know? How, how do you know you're experiencing repentance versus regret. How do I know the difference if they're so similar and on the outside they seem as if they have the same problem? I'm glad you asked. There's three I'll give you. There's a lot, but I'll give you three. Uh, The number one, the first one I'll give you is regret is sorrow over the consequences of sin, not the sin itself. It's sorrow over the consequences of sin, not the sin itself. In other words, if there was no suffering, there would be no sorrow, right? In other words, if if there's no pain, there there would have been no issue. There would have been no problem. You, you, You would have kept on going. You would have kept on enjoying the pleasures of sin and what was going on in your life. You would have kept on moving forward. But it's because when we get caught, when, when something happens to where now we, we have to stop and, and we have to deal with the consequences of what we were doing, now all of a sudden, there's sorrow. You see the difference? right? I, I'm sad because there's consequences to what I've done. Life has gotten harder. Things have been difficult. And because of my sin, now there's consequences that I'm not enjoying. Maybe I've lost a relationship, I've lost a reputation, I've I've had to suffer through confessing to somebody and the embarrassment of that, or or whatever it is. And and so because of the consequences of what we've done, it's fueling our sorrow. So it's it's not necessarily that sorrow is wrong, right? There's sorrow over sin, that's what he's saying. There's there's a godly sorrow, but it's what, what is fueling that sorrow? Is it what you've lost and the consequences of what we've done? Or is it the sin itself? Is it the sin that you've done against God? And the second one is is similar. It leads us to the second one. Regret remains in sorrow while repentance moves on. Regret remains in sorrow while repentance moves on. What what do I mean by that? See, sin, like I said, should create a sorrow in us. It should create this godly sorrow towards the sin itself. But when we're actually repentant, that sorrow eventually goes away. Because when we're repentant, we've now moved away from our sin and we've moved towards God and we've been restored to God in such a way that now our sorrow is dealt with. You catch it? But listen, if if our regret and our sorrow is over what we've lost and the circumstances that our sin have created, then sometimes you get so heartbroken, you're you're just inconsolable. You you, you are not able to uh, get past it because what you've lost is what you really love. What you lost is what was most important to you. And sometimes you've lost it in such a way you can't get it back. You can't. 
And, and so sometimes we're, we're so heartbroken and, and so overwhelmed by the consequences of our sin, we can't move past it because that thing is really what we care about the most. That thing that we've lost, that person, that relationship, that status, that, that reputation, that that we can't have again, we're, we're grieving that loss to the point that it's become our idol. And the last point follows on that. Regret focuses on yourself, not on God. Regret focuses on yourself, not on God. I can't believe I did this. How, how am I ever going to forgive myself? Well, what are they going to think of me? What are they going to say about me? Right? All these questions that start going through your mind because you're regretting that you did it and you're, you're regretting that you've fallen into this thing and, and now it's, it's, it's so overwhelming that you feel this sense like I almost have to beat myself up. Right? There's, there's this thing in the church where you feel like if you take sin seriously, then, then you, you get real angry at yourself. And, and you start to hate yourself, and you start to hate what you did and who you are. And, and if you take sin seriously, you almost have to punish yourself for what you've done. But that's not biblical repentance. In fact, biblical repentance is the opposite. It's, it's not focusing on yourself at all. It's taking your view off of yourself that got you into sin in the first place, and you're looking at God. You, you, you look away from your sin and you look away from what you've done and you look towards Him. You see the difference? Regret is all about me and, and my problems and my difficulties and, and am I ever going to be able to overcome this? But the point of repentance is not you. It's God. It's God who can, who can bring you out of that, right? And, and, and think about it this way. Repentance refuses to make focusing on sin the solution to sin. It refuses to make focusing on sin the solution to sin. One person said it this way. For every look that you take on your sin, take ten looks towards Jesus. Right? It's not denying it, it's saying, I need something else to save me from my sin. My, last summer, our, our family, uh, we, we drove up to the mountains of Georgia and uh, got away for a few weeks uh, with our family, and it was a great place uh, during all the, the COVID things because, you know, there was nobody up there. It was great. You know, just all by yourself and your social distancing with nobody. It was great. Uh, but on our way to Georgia, uh, the drive was, was incredible because, uh, you know, you just see all this beautiful scenery that you don't see in Florida, and uh, we're, we're driving through the mountains, and our kids are loving the, the trees and, and uh, you know, the, the peaks of the mountains out on the horizon, and it was just beautiful, the rolling hills, all of that, but their favorite part of the drive, our, our kids, their, their favorite part of the drive were the tunnels. If you've never been out of Florida, you may not have seen these things, but they have these tunnels that go through the mountains. And when you go into the tunnel, it's exciting because it, it all of a sudden gets real dark and, and you're driving through the tunnel and at the end of the tunnel, you see this burst of light. And our kids love that they're, they're, walk, or they're driving through the tunnel, they're, they're screaming and you know, pretending like they're scared and then they start cheering as we get out of the tunnel because nobody likes to be in the darkness of the tunnel. You, the point of the tunnel is to go through the tunnel yes. to get to the light. Yes. You see what I'm saying? Yes. 
That, that is the point of repentance. The point of repentance is not to sit in the darkness of your sin and to soak over what's happened and hate yourself for what you've done, but to move past it to God, to the light, right? In other words, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Only God can do that. And so repentance moves through that to the one who can deal with it. And when you come to God, he has this surprising way of dealing with your sin. This is what we come to next. He brings repentance through, through weakness. Through weakness. This is the second point, repentance and weakness. Look at verse 11. Uh, we get introduced to Gideon now. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, yeah, exactly. You got to hide it, right? You got to hide it. Here's Gideon. We're introduced to Gideon. He's supposed to be this deliverer, this rescuer, the, the one who's going to bring Israel out of their oppression. We're introduced to Gideon. He's hiding in a hole, in a wine press hole, hiding from all the Midianites who are going to come because he doesn't know when they're going to come. And so he's doing his work in secret. He's terrified. He's anxious. He, he's full of fear. And then you see this fascinating thing, God shows up. The angel of the Lord shows up, don't miss this, he shows up before they repent. He shows up, remember, Israel hasn't repented yet, they're, they're still just living in regret, and God shows up to show them that he doesn't save them because they repent, he saves them so that they repent. He saves them so that they have the ability to now turn towards Him. He, he comes to make the first move. God always makes the first move. He always moves towards us in grace. And so here He's moving towards Gideon in his fear, in his anxiety. Before they repent, He shows up and He makes this announcement in verse 12. He says this. He says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now Gideon is shocked, right? God comes to him and he says, the Lord is with you. What, what are you talking about? Are you, he's like looking around. Don't you see what's happening? How can God be with us? How, how can the Lord be with us and all this is going on? Don't, don't you see what's happening in Midian? I mean, our fathers told us about stories of deliverance and how God would show up, but I don't see it. I mean, Gideon's idea of God being with them means everything is easy and nice and pleasant. And so he doesn't see evidence of that. But the angel pushes a little further in verse 14. He says, go in this might of yours. I love that. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? Again, Gideon gets shocked when he hears this second little nudge from the angel. He gets shocked. He says, really, mighty man of valor, look at me. I'm the weakest man in my family. I'm, I'm from this small, insignificant clan and the insignificant tribe of Israel. I, I have nothing to offer. Why are you calling me? You need to go find somebody else because I'm depressed and weak and frail. I've got nothing to offer. And then this is what he says. Yet again, the Lord repeats his promise. In verse 16, he says, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Don't miss it. This is incredible. He calls Gideon mighty, not because of Gideon, but because of himself. Because of himself. 
Do you see that? Right? He says it three times because Gideon's a little thick. He says, the Lord is with you. And then he says, do not I send you. And then he says, but I will be with you. Three times he says it to Gideon. Gideon is getting this promise of God's presence, this covenant promise that God has given to his people all throughout history, right? Exodus 29, 45, he says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. Jeremiah 32, 38, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. This is the promise that he continues to give over and over and over again to Gideon. I will be with you. It's God's covenant promise of his presence. It's the same promise that he gives in the New Testament to Paul when the Apostle Paul is wrestling with his own weakness. We don't know what it was, but there was some kind of ailment that Paul was was dealing with. And Paul is begging to God, God, deliver me from my weakness. Make me strong. I can't deal with this anymore. I need strength to do what I need to do. And this is God's response to his begging in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, but he said to me, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is what the Lord was saying to Gideon. He was inviting Gideon to lead the people in repentance by saying, your weakness is what I want. Right? Gideon Gideon wanted strength. But God wanted weakness. Gideon was regretting that he was weak, but God was rejoicing that he was weak. Gideon without God was pathetic. But Gideon with God was full of power. Full of power. See, weakness is the door to repentance. Weakness is the door. It's what opens up the opportunity for repentance. Consider for a moment Peter and his story, right? You know the Apostle Peter, one of one of Jesus' closest disciples. Peter's that guy that he was full of courage, full of might. He would go and do anything for Jesus. He was the one who had so much faith that he actually walked on water. Sure, he fell in the water, but he walked for a little while, right? I mean, this was Peter. He was a man of faith, a man of courage. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, they're gathered around the table, and Jesus looks over at Peter and he says, Peter... I've been praying for you because Satan is after your soul. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? I'm full of strength. I I can do whatever. I'm not afraid of Satan. And Jesus says, no, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the night's over. And he's like, no, 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 I, I will stick with you forever. I will do whatever you say. I will be with you. And then Jesus was right. He comes, or the, the people come and arrest Jesus and take him away. And Peter, as he's sulking and, and wondering what he should do, he's gathered around a group of people and he denies Jesus three times around a fire pit and the rooster crows to confirm exactly what Jesus said. It's one of the darkest nights of Peter's life. It, it's that moment where, where everybody looks and they say, man, if, if only Peter knew. But do you know what Peter was told right after Jesus warned him. I love this. We were talking about this in our grow class a couple weeks ago, and I've been praying about it for weeks. It's right before 
Peter actually denies him, but it's after the warning. It's right after the warning. This is what he says in John chapter 14 to Peter. This is what Jesus says. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Oh, don't miss it. It's, it's incredible. Jesus is giving him the same promise. Jesus is giving him the promise of his presence. He's, he's saying to Peter, even though you're full of weakness, even though sin is going to grab hold of your life, even though you're going to deny me and deny that you're going to deny me, I'm with you. I am with you. Even though you're going to fail me, I am with you. Even though your life is going to fall apart and you're going to wonder, is all of this worth it? I am with you. He says that right before Peter fails because Jesus knows that the greatest promise he can give to him is to tell him you're not going to be alone. You're going to fail. You're going to deny me. You're, you're going to fall when you don't think you're going to fall, but I will be with you. Listen, you can go through a lot with that promise. You can go through a lot. It may not answer your questions. It may not fix your problems right away, but if you know that God is with you. You can go through a lot because he will be with you with his power. He will be with you in your weakness. He will be with you in your failures. He will be with you to lead you towards repentance because that's the essence of the gospel, right? Jesus is the Emmanuel. He is God with us. Not only is he God over us, not only is he God before us, not only is he God behind us, but he is God with us. That's who he is. He is the God who comes in weakness. He comes in weakness to be with us, for us. Right? He wasn't rich, but he was poor. He wasn't accepted, but he was rejected. He wasn't majestic, but he came marginalized. He got hungry. He got tired. He got discouraged. He got anxious. He got angry. He was fully God, but he was fully man in his weakness. And Isaiah 53 said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He came in weakness for the weak to die for the weak. He was led to the cross like a lamb in our place. He was silent against all the accusations, not because they were true of him. He was blameless, but because they were true of us. They were true of me and you. They were true because he stood in our place for our sin, for our shame, for our weakness. And so Jesus' work in his weakness, through his weakness, gives us strength in our weakness. The gospel makes us secure by his very presence. By his very presence, God is with us. Even more, he's in us. So the work of Jesus' weakness to save us it actually secures us. It's what makes us able to repent because we can't run from his presence. We can't ruin his presence. We can't mess up his presence. If we are in Christ, he is with us to the end. We can turn away from our sin and turn toward our Savior. We can give up our prideful regret. We can move past our self-pity. We can lay down our idols of this world. We can take up the joy of knowing Jesus in our weakness. And so as we close, I want to I ask you, do you need to move from regret to repentance today? That, that's what he's inviting us into. He's inviting us out of the shame and the guilt and the self-hate of regret and to say there is light. There is hope for you. And it's in repentance. Actually, one of the core motives of our church, our core values 
is, is humility. And we, do, we describe, we summarize humility as this. You embrace your weakness and you take the low place. You embrace your weakness and you take the low place. All of us are weak. It's a question of will you embrace it? Will you see it as the door to God? Or will you see it as some kind of barrier to your ego? I mean, that's what he's inviting us into. The life of faith and repentance is one where you're constantly embracing your weakness and you're saying to God, I can't do this. I know this is who I am. I know that I'm broken. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I've failed. I know I don't have the ability, but you do. And in my weakness and in my failures, you meet me. You come and you meet me. And so whether you're a Christian this morning or, or you're still wrestling, trying to figure out what you believe and trying to figure out if you follow Jesus or not, the invitation is the same. The invitation is to come to him in your weakness. And Jesus says, I will be with you. It's what the angel says to Gideon. Behold, the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you... Um, Love us with such a radical love that you would come uh, despite our foolish regret, despite our holding on to our idolatry, despite our sulking and our sin and our consequences. You show up and you meet us in our despair. You meet us at the bottom and, and you invite us out. You invite us out saying, I've gone down to the bottom for you. Jesus, you died on the cross going to hell itself for us. You've gone to the grave so that you could bring us out in resurrection. And so, God, I pray for us today as we uh, consider what it means to live a life of repenting faith, that this would be the ongoing, normal way we live, that every day we would wake up and embrace our weakness. Every afternoon we would lower ourselves and consider who we are in, in the strength that you give us. God, that every evening we would look back and we would see, despite our weakness, you have delivered us. Despite our lack of really any resources, you've showed up on our behalf. Oh God, we ask that you would get all the glory, not just in our salvation, but in our sanctification. You would get all the glory in the whole journey that you would be the one who moves us, transforms us. And so God, we ask you would do it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your Jesus.
Before we dismiss, a few reminders. If you're new around here, this is the Connect card John was talking about earlier. There are some copies in the back. We would love to get to know you, connect with you, so you can fill that out. And our hospitality team also has a gift back there, so if you turn it into them, they would love to just bless you with a gift and say thank you for being our guest today. Also, I forgot last week to introduce you to none other than Mike Thigpen, our new worship director. Uh, so glad for Mike and his wife Lacey and their kids to move here. Uh, you pray for him. He just, this first week on the job, unpacking stuff at his house, and his family is still in Illinois. So if you want to take him out to lunch, I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, but yeah, he, he's uh, helping transition everything until they're able to move down in a few weeks. And so, um, yeah, we're really glad to have them with us and um, join the team at Strong Tower. So now if you're faith, amen. Amen. <laughs> 
If your faith is in Christ, uh, hear his benediction as he sends us out with his grace and favor today as we turn towards him, knowing he is a God of mercy overflowing towards us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Love y'all. Thank you.